if you've been with us for a while, you kind of know the context of where we're at. This is uh, around the time, this is kind of post-Lord's Supper with Jesus and his disciples. And last week, what we just saw was we saw Judas uh, go out to betray him. That's why verse 31 says, and when he had gone out, Jesus said these things. And why that's significant is because as soon as Judas left, left to go betray Jesus, Jesus knew that the clock was ticking, that it was just about time, just about time for the end of his life. And whenever you're at the end of your life and you know that that is coming, you don't talk about trivial things. You talk about the most important things in your life. With those around you, you talk about the most important stuff. If you've ever had the privilege of, of being with someone right before they right before they pass or leading up to um, their passing uh, due to a cancer diagnosis or something like that, which again, I say that again, have you, if you've ever had the privilege of this, you'll notice a change in your conversations with them. They, t they no longer want to talk about the weather and sports and stuff like that. They want to talk about substance. They want to talk about the weighty matters of life. That's what, that's what you experience. And right here, J Jesus is recognizing that Judas has gone, his clock is ticking, and within hours he's going to be arrested, and the entire glorification process leading to the cross is going to start. And this is what Jesus wants to talk about. He talks about glory, and he uses the word glory five times in just two verses. He talks about the glory of God, the glory of the cross, the glory of, of him coming. And we should pay attention to this because he knows that the clock is running out and this is the most important thing to Jesus, the glory of God, the glory of God. And what's uh, interesting about this is it's hard for us to grasp. I think a lot of theological uh, words in the Bible, whenever we read that, it's like, oh, God is love. Or it's like, okay, I, I kind of have some handles that uh, I understand what it means whenever uh, the Bible says that God is love or that God is just. I have some real-world handles to kind of grab onto, right, that helps me understand, helps me understand what justice means or what love means or what kindness means or what gentleness means. And so we don't have as hard of a time, but whenever we get to this word glory, this is much harder. I, I feel like I've already lost some of you. It's like, oh, he's talking about the glory of God. This is the sermon that I tune out because I don't even, like, like it, it confuses me. It confuses me. I was like, what is this? What is, what is glory? Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we gave a basic definition and I want to build upon it today. Glory, or this word doxa, or doxa um, in, in Greek, means supreme value, supreme worth, to praiseworthy, uh, uh, glor um, magnificent, or something to celebrate, something beautiful, all right? And so you're like, okay, that, that was a lot of different words. That's why it's hard for us to grasp. That's why it's hard for us to grasp. Remember in the, uh, whenever Jesus was telling a story about the treasure that, he, um, that some man found in the field? What did, what did the man do whenever he saw the treasure in the field? It says that he sold everything. And with joy, he went and purchased the field so that he could get the treasure. And so what that, uh, the point of bringing that up is that the treasure in the guy's eye was so glorious that it was worth giving up everything. It was so glorious that it was worth giving up 
everything. And, and I'm sure this guy had some stuff that he really, really liked. But it said he sold everything with joy. That, that captures a little bit of what this idea of glory actually means. So valuable, so, so worthy of everything, so beautiful. It doesn't matter, like, nothing else matters. Nothing else really matters. I would sell everything just to get a glimpse, glimpse of the glory. And that, that's the purpose of, of that parable, of that parable. But what we see here also is it's profoundly beautiful. It's profoundly beautiful. Uh, whenever uh, Moses was in the Old Testament, so whenever he had face-to-face encounters with God, that his face shone with the glory of God. That they couldn't even look at him. They said, Moses, you've got to put on a veil. Uh, you're you're beaming. This is is too magnificent. No human eyes should be able to comprehend this. And this is hard for us to grasp, right? We're simple people. You know, we're in a culture that uh, loves slogans uh, to explain things, loves to have really simplistic, and we we like, uh, like think of political slogans, build back better, you know, BBB, you know, like something that really rolls off the tongue, make America great, you know, the MAGA, you know, whatever. I know that was triggering, but just, uh, this is, this is, uh, this shows the simplicity of kind of how, uh, entire uh, structures are set up within our culture. And just one slogan, and like a whole flood of feelings comes in. This is how we. This is how we like this. Um, like like things explained to us. And glory is just not like that. Glory involves the totality of God's nature: His beauty, worth, holiness, righteousness, um, omniscience. Uh, 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 omnipresence, His eternality, His love, His justice. And grasping this can be somewhat overwhelming. It should be, should be overwhelming. It's trying to understand the nature of an infinite, holy God that is described as just completely other, completely other than us. But the Bible says something very significant. It says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's Habakkuk 2.14. It says, take it to the bank, no matter what, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth. It's going to spread to every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's going to spread every, everywhere. And so it means that what that ultimately means is that it, the glory of God is going to capture the imagination of every single person on earth at the end of history. It's going to capture the imagination and so right now, it seems like we're far away from that to every single tongue tri- person from every tri- tongue, tribe, and nation grasping that, that, that reality. But here's my, my question. Have we grasped it in this room? Have we grasped it? Is God the most valuable thing to you? Is God the most beautiful thing to you? Because what Jesus says right here is that the greatest showing of the glory of God is what he's about to accomplish on the cross. Has that captured our heart and our imagination? Do we see it as supremely beautiful and supremely worthy of all that we are, of all that we do? And before we get to kind of unpacking and explaining that, let me ask, let me ask you another question. Why are you not fueled to live for God with all that you are? Like what... Whenever you try to get spiritually going, why, why is it hard to find fuel to get this spiritual life ramped up in your own heart? 
Like, I know I'm, I'm not just, I might just be talking and preaching to myself. Like, why, why do I have a hard time living and treasuring God? Why do I have a hard time delighting and worshiping God? Why is there something within me that this is just not automatic? Like, what, what's, what's going on? What's going on? And the Bible is so clear. It's not because you haven't dotted every theological T or, or, or crossed every theological T, dotted every theological I. It's because we have a small view of the glory of God. We have a small view of the glory of God. If we had a large view of the glory of God, then, then uh, our, our fuel tank would, be, would never be empty. And this is, this is really important because uh, let me present it to you uh, with an analogy. I think sometimes, sometimes life with God, living for God, living for God is kind of like um, trying to keep a, a balloon up in the air. All right? There's a couple of different ways you can keep a balloon up in the air. Right? If you, if you and I were blowing up a balloon, and then we're like, okay, faith is like keeping this balloon going. How do we keep this balloon going? Well, uh, with my breath, I have to hit it, all right? And so our faith is kind of like, you know what? My, my balloon is not falling super fast to the ground, but it is falling to the ground, so I got I to gotta hit it somehow. So I'll, let me hit it with some Bible study. So we pump it up, like we hit it with some Bible study. And it's like, oh man, and that worked. It's going up. Oh no, but it's going down. So let me hit it some, with some prayer. Poof. Let me hit it with some, uh, man, that doesn't work. It keeps on coming down. Let me hit it with maybe some, going to church every once in a while. Let me hit it. Poof. All right, went to church. I'm going up. Oh man, I'm coming back down. I'm coming back down. And so like maybe, maybe going to church and reading the Bible and praying, maybe that stuff doesn't work. Ever felt that? I've been there, done that. Hit, hit my faith with that, and my faith kept on fluttering, fluttering down to the ground. What, what's up with that? Maybe, maybe I need something else. Maybe I haven't found the real stuff. So we changed denominations, right? <laughs> changed denominations, all right? Uh, now these people are the ones that, that got it. Oh, man, it keeps on coming down. Or maybe, maybe I need to read some different books. Maybe, maybe uh, I, I've never really grasped meditating, and that's what I need to do. I need to grasp some meditation. So, poof, we hit it up in the air again. It's like, oh, but it keeps on fluttering down. And, and I, I could keep, I just keep on going all day long with whatever your thing. What is your thing? Uh, you probably have a thing that you've been like, poof, this is going to be the magic key, and it's just going to go up, soar into heaven until I see him face to face. That's what's going to happen to my faith. What happens? seems to keep on fluttering down. And what was the problem with that? What was the problem? You were supplying all the substance to keep the balloon up. You filled in your breath. You used your, your hands to get it up. And, and, and in our faith, what we need is a grasp of the glory of God. You know what the grasp of the glory of God is? Helium. Helium. All right? Helium, you, you don't have to do anything to keep your faith going up and up and up with a, with a balloon. It's just going to go up. It's going to go up. It's like, right, well, what's in that? It's like, I'm, just, I'm focused on the glory of God. Down to my eating and my drinking. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. That's saying, down to what you put in your mouth. Say, glory be to God. The centrality of your life, uh, the, the gravity that you're revolving around is, the, is one thing and one thing only. I live for his glory. glory. I keep him supremely at the center of everything that I am. Uh, he is infinitely valuable to, to me. He is the most important thing to me, and he is infinitely beautiful to me. 
And this is, this is what we need. This is what we need. And, the, and Jesus right here in this passage tells us how we get it. Tells us how we can capture, how we can see it, how we can fill our lives with the glory of the God, uh, glory of God. He says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. And you say, look at the cross, Cody. We got a problem. You said glory is beautiful. You said glory is valuable. Uh, listen to me. Do you understand the problem? It, yesterday, Stephanie and I, uh, we're flipping through movies. Uh, there's a rare time to where our kids went outside to play, and we're like, they're actually content outside. And it's not blistering hot. This is awesome. What do you want to do? I was like, oh, let's turn on TV. Uh, watch a movie. So we started scrolling through some stuff. Never actually watched a movie. We just scrolled. <laughs> and um, and we, got to, we got to this one movie that we said, man, we've been wanting to see this, but we haven't gotten around to it. And uh, it was 12, 12 Years a Slave. Won a lot of account. Uh, Academy Awards and stuff. I was like, oh man, you know, I'd actually be interested in seeing that, seeing that. So we watched the trailer, and as the trailer was going, there was just a sickening feeling over both of us. And Stephanie said it first, but I was I was right there behind her. I was just like, I cannot believe this was a time period that wasn't that long ago. How graphic and how horrible and how demeaning, and how dehumanizing. What what on earth? Praise God, that's done. Uh, praise God that's done um, in, in this extent and, and no longer in the public eye. Gosh, so terrible, so terrible. And the only reason I bring that up is if you could see what happened to Jesus on the cross, the number one thing that you and I would do is we'd be sickened in our inner being and we'd feel like vomiting. And yet Jesus says that this is glorious. This is glorious. Do you see the trouble is Jesus right here? That the cross is the most glorious thing, the most beautiful thing in all of human history? You see the problem here? The most valuable thing, an old wooden cross, some rusty nails going through flesh. Ter this was a terrible death. This was, this was gory. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I have to drive this home because look at what Jesus is saying. He's saying, This is beautiful, this is valuable, this is worthy. This is the thing that you should meditate on day and, day and night. And he says, this is what, uh, this is the, the thing that should be central in everything that you do. This is how you live for the glory of God. Meditate on this. And you say, God, how? How is this valuable? How is this beautiful? Well, let's unpack it. Let's first <laughs> unpack it with our minds. How is this, how is this valuable and how is this beautiful? All right, let's first unpack it with our minds. Let's, uh, let's reason together of why this is a beautiful, valuable thing. Why the cross of Jesus is beautiful and valuable, all right? First, this shows us the glory of God's wisdom. The cross shows us the glory of God's wisdom. How? Because God did not look down from heaven and say, you know what, there's a bunch of sinners down there that are essentially rebels against me, people that have betrayed me, and you know what? I love them. I love them, so I'm just going to sweep everything under the rug. I have those that I love, and I just want to bestow my love on them. So I'm going to cast uh, their sin as far as the east is from the west, so I, I can keep my holiness, and I can just swipe uh, their sin debt clean. And I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. No one's going to say anything. I won't say anything. Now, 
that, that would show, what would that show? That would show the glory of his love. He had every right to do that. He had every right to, what, he's, he spoke everything into existence. Could he not speak that into existence? All right, but that would not, listen, that would not show the goodness or the glory of his justice or his holiness. A God that is so, so set on justice that says, whenever something is wrong, I will right it. Whenever, there, whenever there's a sin committed against another person, I will pay for it. That there will be justice reigning in the world that I created. There will be. There is not one thing that is outside of his eye. There are no secret sins to God. Everything, your life, Hitler's life, Osama bin Laden's life, uh, slaveholders' lives, uh, uh, everyone's life is before God. There is no secret sin. No secret sin whatsoever. In God, God says there must be justice. But just say, imagine if there was justice. In just justice, who would be left? Not me. I wouldn't be here. I'd be obliterated in hell because I'm a rebel. I'm a rebel. I betrayed God. I betrayed God in my sin. Sin is relational, and ultimately, it's against a, a very, very relational God. A very relational God. So imagine he just wiped everyone clean. Uh, 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 wiped everyone out. That would be glorious in his justice. Look, everyone got exactly what they deserve. But what we see in the cross is the beauty of the connection between God's love and God's justice. To where he said, I will by no means pardon the guilty. I will pour out my wrath on someone who is a representative, someone who is a representative for all of mankind, all of mankind. But whenever he, he chose that representative, it was himself. He says, I will take the blame. I will bear the punishment. I will take on all the wrath. And thus, that shows his love. I can't stand for my children to, to, to be in this predicament. So I will take their punishment. I will be their federal representative, and I will take their punishment. Every last drop. So pour out justice, and I will reveal my love. See, in the cross, you see the glory of his wisdom. You know, to where these two things, these two things could never coincide. How could they coincide apart from the cross, apart from Jesus doing it? apart from Jesus showing his divine justice coupled with his divine compassion, love, and grace. See, the cross shows us, the cross shows us the glory of his wisdom, that he's both just and the justifier of the sinner. But it also shows us, uh, well, let's switch. Let's not think about this anymore. Let's go to our heart. Let's go to our heart. What's the things that pull at your heartstring? If you're anything like me, the things that pull at my heartstrings is when someone does something really courageous. Really courageous. What's the ultimate glory of a soldier? What is the ultimate glory of a soldier? Is it winning the battle? I, I would say throughout all of human history, the ultimate glory of the soldier is going up into a battle that he knows or she knows has overwhelming odds against them and they stay and they sacrifice. They substitute themselves for the cause. They substitute the, themselves for the ones that they love. That's courage. 
That's courage. Every single great story that there is has this motif, has this theme at the center of it. Harry Potter is nothing without Lily Potter. There is no story unless it's the boy who lived, whose mom sacrificed for him. Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe would be nothing without the stone table, without Aslan dying for the traitor Edmund. The, uh, the Hunger Games would be nothing unless Katniss volunteered as tri tribute, all right? There would be no story there. Lord of the Rings, same thing. Every single great story that is transcendent throughout culture has this motif. Someone courageously substituting themselves for those that they love. Uh, have you ever seen those uh, videos on, on YouTube or some platform that um, sees a cancer patient and, and uh, it comes time to where they're going through a, a certain type of chemo that where they have to shave their head and they have family members that um, shave their head and then they turn right around and they turn the blade on themselves and they shave their own head. Man, that gets me every, <laughs> like every time. Just mel melts, me, melts me in my seat. Every single time. Why? Because what can be more beautiful than someone beautiful trading in their beauty in solidarity for another? Friends, look at the cross. There has never been a more beautiful human being, a more perfect human being, a more just human being, a more loving human being, a more compassionate human being than the man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he voluntarily, voluntarily got up on that tree and said, not if I die, I die, but when I die, I will die for them. I cherish them, I love them. The greatest beauty that in the history of history has substituted himself for you. And if that doesn't pull on your heartstrings, you, you don't have ears to hear it right now. But I beg, I beg that the, that the community of faith here at Redeemer Church can help you hear the glory of, the, the glory of God and the cross of Jesus, that the most beautiful being in all of history lost all of his beauty for you, for you. Christianity is the only religion it's the only, listen, it's the only religion to where God had to become courageous. He became courageous for you. He substituted himself for you. No other God is risks on, on his creation. He, they dictate and they say, you're in or you're out. But our God had to become vulnerable. He had to become killable. He had to do that. He said, this is the only way. The divine wisdom of God was perfectly, perfectly melded together. In him being both just and the one who is the justifier for all of mankind. Have you received it? Do you believe it? Have you caught a glimpse of it? Have you caught a glimpse of the glory there? Because I, I tell you, one glimpse will whet your appetite for the rest of your life. So I gotta pursue this, I gotta know it more, I gotta know it deeper, I have to run to it. Everything that he says, he's worthy. He's worthy of my life, he's worthy of my attention, he's worthy of my time management, he's worthy of how I think about food, how I think about uh, t uh, uh, how I, I spend my weekends, everything, everything. If you get just, just one glimpse, just one glimpse, it'll change everything, it'll change everything. So here's the glory of God, it's revealed in the cross cross of Jesus. But there's more to this passage. There's more to this passage. If you just see that, if you just see that, um, it's great. But it, Jesus moves forward in this passage to, to reveal the mark of a true Christian. The mark of a true Christian, obviously, is someone that has caught a glimpse 
even if it's a very small glimpse of the glory of God. But uh, this passage Joshua talks about in 34 and 35 about the mark of a true, the mark of a true Christian. It says this, it says this, that the world will know that you're my disciples, how you love one another. And everyone will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And what's interesting about this is uh, a lot of commentators are confused by 33. Like he kind of has a transition here that let me help kind of explain. It says this in 33, little children, yet I'm with you for a little while and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews and now say to you, where I'm going, you cannot go. He, he's obviously here and whenever he says, where I'm going, you cannot go. He's talking about the cross. He says, this is something that you cannot add to. I have to do this all to myself. And so that's a, a lesson for us Christians. If we're trying to add anything to our salvation, uh, Jesus here is rebuking you. No, I do this all on my own. You will not help your, your own salvation. You will not help it. But ultimately what, it, what he's saying here is that those that have caught a glimpse of it, those that have caught a glimpse will be unified and then identified by love. If you, if you have caught a glimpse of the glory of God, the number one primary identifier that you have caught a glimpse of it is your love for the church. Your love for the church. Now remember, you say, Cody, why the church? Remember, the church is not a place, it's a people. The, church, the true church of Jesus is made up of every single regenerate person throughout all of human history that makes up every tongue, tribe, and nation. All right? And so that is the true church. And what the Bible is saying is when you catch a glimpse of your, uh, of your Lord's glory, what happens reflexively of how you know that you are saved is you have a deep love and devotion for the people of God. A deep love and devotion for the people of God. He goes on to explain this a little bit more, um, a little bit more in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. This is in his high priestly prayer. Let me just read it to you real quick. It says, I do not ask for these things only, but I also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you understand what he's saying? Jesus is saying, uh, the world will no longer be able to see me. I'm going to, I'm going to the Father after, I, after um, my finished work on the cross, but the world will know about the glory of the cross based on the quality of love between my people. Between my people. The world will see the glory of the cross through our love for one another. So let me point out a couple of things and then we'll be done about this. Yes, you heard it right. What Jesus was testifying here was this. Was that Jesus was saying that the primary ethic that the world will use to see if God is really among us and God is really powerful is our love for the church, not our love for the world. Now, that doesn't mean, listen, that does not mean we're not called to love the world. Of course we are. It says it on the, it says it on the Sermon on the, on the Mount. Jesus says this in other places. However, track with me. Eye contact, all right? Um, however, What's going on here is he's saying that the primary way that you will be able to faithfully make disciples in the cross will become beautiful is your love for one another within the church who is a devoted group of people living out the mission of God together. Together. 
all right? This is the primary way that we're going to put skin or put clothes on what God has done in the cross. We will reveal the glory of God through our devotion to one another, our devotion to one another. Now, of course, we're supposed to love our, our neighbors, and we, we are to do that, but that is supposed to be spillage. That's the overflow. That's, that's having your cup of coffee a little bit too, too much, and we spill over there, and every time, every time it goes that way, we graft those people in. We say, no, hey, uh, everyone can belong to the family of God. God shows no partiality, but the primary way that we are to promote promote the glory of the cross is through our love and devotion to one another. And now, I, I have to say this because there's, there's confusion within the church now. The confusion of the church is, uh, well, let me just speak plainly. Right now, our cultural moment, as soon as I got here to Wichita Falls, almost every single conversation I had with people, they expressed some form of church hurt. If you don't know what that is, Praise God right now and, and be thankful. Be thankful for the Lord. But the primary way, that, now this is going to make sense, that the primary way that people like to talk about church is their bad experiences with church. And listen, what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that those things are not valuable, that they did not really happen, that they aren't hurtful, that they aren't painful. I know they are. I know they are. Okay? But... I want you to recognize the spiritual dynamics that are going on in that. We as the church, we as the church are called to do what? To love one another. And Jesus says this is a new commandment, a new commandment. And you're like, Cody, why did he say that? Why is it a new commandment? Because I'm pretty sure this is in the Old Testament somewhere. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure every single religion throughout all of history has said love one another in some form or fashion. But that's not the sticking point here. The sticking point here is love as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved? How has Jesus loved you and me? He laid down his life for us. He forgave us even whenever we infinitely wronged him. And so what is our motivation? What is our ethic? What is our standard of love? The same love that Jesus displayed to us on the cross. So how does this play out? You say, Cody, does that mean I'm just supposed to uh, be wounded by the church and never say anything? Absolutely not. In fact, if anyone ever says that, listen to me. If anyone, a church leader, uh, someone from a, 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 a small group leader, a group of people say, hey, it's not actually wise to talk about the bad stuff that's going on in the church, that's demonic. That's, that's actually demonic, okay? Why? Because we have the, the instructions of how to work out disagreements within the church. Jesus, our Lord, in Matthew 18, in Matthew 18, he gives step-by-step -step instructions. If someone has wronged you, you are to go to them. If y'all cannot sort it out, if there, there is still sin in the midst of all of this, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to grab an accountability group that they love and that you love, and you're supposed to work it out together within the group. If that still does not bring reconciliation, again, this is directly from the Lord, you are supposed to bring in a larger group from the church, a larger group from the church to where you're saying, hey, this is the initial agreement. We keep on missing, 
and we keep on sinning against one another, and we cannot come to harm, harmony. The, the, the devil would say, so let's just sweep this under the rug now. Let's not talk about it anymore. And, and at this church, as long as I'm the pastor, that will never happen. You have to come forward. You have to come forward. We will work things out. We will be a unified gospel-centered disciple-making family here. Amen? I hope you believe me. I will fight. I will fight for you. That's what under-shepherds are called by God to do. Fight for the sheep. I will lay down my life to the best of my ability against the wolves. All right? But with that, we're to bring harmony as best we can as a church. And if that does not happen there... We are to say, we are to pray, we are to fast, we are to seek God, and then we treat people that cannot repent as unbelievers. Now, you say, man, that sounds tribal, that sounds really, really harsh. What do we do with unbelievers, folks? We change the way that we talk to people. We were talking to them as if they were a brother and sister in Christ. Now we talk to them as if they're not a brother and sister in Christ. But what do we do with them? They say, get out of here. No. We share the gospel. It's like, let's start all the way over. Let's go back to square one. Who is God? Who is the Lord? And we start all the way over. When that, the Lord, the Lord does not want us, listen to me, to suffer in silence. The Lord does not want us to suffer in silence. And if anyone is giving you godly counsel in that, it is not from the Lord. We are called to love one another as Christ has loved us. And God has given us a pattern to do this. So, if this is not happening within the church, this is not happening with the church, the number one thing that we need to see here is people will leave Christianity. People will leave Christianity if our relationships are not vibrant and different. If we cannot fight for harmony within the church, people will say, what do I need to do with those people out there? Uh, and in America right now, in America right now, we're on a decline. My hope is that Redeemer Church can have, be a little microcosm of the glory of God, the kingdom of heaven, here in this community. And it will transform and change how every single church operates within this within this body of believers in which all falls. So we have, to see, we have to see that very, very clearly. I have one story about this that is just mind-blowing. I've been reading a book on John Knox. I'm trying to think about what I'm going to call my baby. If it's a boy, I don't, maybe John Knox, I don't know. Um, so I'm reading a book about John Knox, and uh, for a little while he was a, a bodyguard to a preacher, a, a Protestant preacher in 1544. In 1544, uh, this was right during the height of the Protestant Reformation in England. God was doing a lot of things. He was doing stuff in France. He was doing stuff in Germany. And he was doing stuff in England with a guy named John Knox. And uh, John Knox was learning from his mentor who was preaching the gospel. And he got an invitation from a Catholic bishop to come preach at this cathedral. And whenever he got this invitation, uh, it also said, if you show up, we will kill you. LOL, J, JK, not really. Uh, something, something like that. And so uh, this man, whose name is uh, jo uh, George Wizard, George Wizard said, hey, I'll take that up. And he goes and he shows up. And the Catholic priest 
walked up to him with a short sword to stab him and to assassinate him. He caught his hand. He caught his hand, put down the sword, and he put his arm around him. And he said, do this man no harm. He is my friend. And he stood next to him, the man that was going to kill him. And he said, our call, our call is to love our neighbor as ourself. And this man has done me no harm. No harm? He caught, he caught the assassination attempt. But he said, no, he's my friend. And the Protestant Reformation was started in England because of this man's faithfulness. Listen, church, our suffering, I don't know what God is doing in it, but look at the suffering on the cross and know, and know, whenever we receive it the same way that Christ does, he's going to do powerful things. Powerful things. All right? It's hard to see it in the midst of it. I don't know what his mind was thinking when the knife was being stabbed up towards his heart. But whenever he caught it, he put on the robe of Christ and showed him unconditional love and made a friend and transformed that town. Everyone came and listened to this man preach for the next couple of days. Why? Because he showed the love of Christ. He showed the love of Christ where it was not deserved. Redeemer Church, let's go and do likewise. Amen? Let's pray.